Hello and welcome to the Booze Brothers. I'm Steve. And I'm David. We have been best friends since second grade, if you can believe that. It's true. And we're the founders of the Tomstown Distilling Company in Kansas City, Missouri. We started Tomstown because we wanted to make game-changing spirits, and we really like to drink, laugh, and drink some more. And thought it would be interesting to learn more about some of the game-changing moments from the lives of the friends we've made. We've met some amazing people since we started the distillery. Funny, fascinating, and generally nuts. And just like cocktails with character, these folks are characters. We felt the world needed to meet these folks, so here we are. Some are famous, some are infamous, but all have fabulous stories of their journey. David, I'm thrilled uh, with our guest today. Now, normally on a podcast, the third episode, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel for guests. Yeah. We got a good one this time. Who'd we get? Stuart Bailey. Oh, God. He is a genius. Yeah. Uh, Behind the scenes guy, though. He's not, you're not going to see him in front of the camera. They call that a face for radio, Steve. (laughs) He has always been, though. He's that guy that is the the most hilarious guy in the room, but he is always behind the scenes. Uh, He is just. He's a comedic genius. He really is, and it's fascinating to hear to hear how he sort of picked up um, what he wanted to do early and basically went after it. So he's just been a force, a, a comedic force for some of the some of the great TV shows and groundbreaking shows that have been out there. Yeah, and truly, Steve, if we could ever see him in person, he has uh, amazing hair. That how does that come across on a podcast? You can it, touch it. You can touch his hair. If you could touch Stuart's hair, it's a it's a it's a, a feeling like you you'll never forget. Well, I can't wait till there's a vaccine because I really want to touch his hair. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this little conversation with Stuart Bailey here on the Booze Brothers, ladies and gentlemen. Show business's very own Stuart Bailey, all the way from The Daily Show, Last Call with Carson Daly, and now. Access Hollywood, Stuart <laughs> Bailey. Stuart, welcome. A native of Kansas. It's such a pleasure to see you. My goodness, it's been years. Thank you. I I, it's, I don't want to uh, toot my own horn right off the bat, but I've been told many times that I had a face for audio-only podcasts, and I just feel right at home <laughs> with you guys. I have to say, you have the best hair in comedy. Your hair is oh it's a piece, right? This is a <laughs> this a, is a piece. It's a series, it's a contraption not unlike our presidents, uh, in that if you were to see me out of the shower, you'd probably never go to sleep again. Do you know whose hair it is or was? I heard it's from another country and I stopped asking. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> Stuart, how are how is life treating you in the era of COVID? Can you leave your home? We're talking to you live from uh, sunny La La Land, right? I'm in the San Fernando Valley, a place called Valley Village, the home of the the fictional home of the Sarah Silverman show when it was on Comedy oh. Central. She lived in Valley Village. It's right next to Studio City. Oh, where prestigious. You- yeah, right, where they have studios, aptly named. This is, we've been, like everybody, under house arrest for six months. I have two wow. teenage boys Oy. who have been home, and my wife did work at home. It used to be that she had the house to herself. Now she has to contend with three occasionally bathed men and boys who, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's house arrest for a crime she didn't commit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, like everybody else, we're just trying to, and then someone says, well, I think it's only another year of this. And I said, wait, only a year? <laughs> oh like, is that meant to reassure me? And, they, and so then they added best case scenario. And then, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Like, 
it's been six months and I feel like I got about two more days in the tank of this. Like I got to come up with a year of how to manage this. I mean, are you guys, are you guys managing? Okay. Yeah. When you say you're occasionally bathing, would today be one of those occasions? Did it today. Did it today. This is about, you are getting me at peak freshness here. And I know it's lost on podcast no. listeners, but I think they, I think they sense it. They sense we've kind of gone, we've kind of gone back to little house on the prairie where Paul bathed once a week. Yeah. Uh, if we were lucky. Yeah. Is that where you are right now? Yeah. yeah if, 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 when, when, uh, time permitting, I'll at least do a bird bath, which is just a little sprinkle around a couple of places. <laughs> we don't need to get into what places, but you know what I'm, no. you, I think, I think, I think we have an idea. <laughs> it's kind of funny when, when I, when I was doing a little research on you and okay. I, I was, I saw the daily show and I forgot. I think most people forgot about Craig Kilborn. Yeah. And that was a, a long stretch. I mean, it, it was like 300 plus episodes. So when we, so it's an institution now, but I started when it, it never even had a pilot, which is most television shows make a sample episode, a pilot. Uh, we went right into production with Craig Kilborn, who at the time was like the funny guy on ESPN right. Oh, right. who would make home runs, you know, with catchphrases and that sort of thing. And so, uh, and there wasn't even competition. It was, he didn't, he, they just asked him to do it. They had recently lost uh, Bill Maher's show and they wanted, Comedy Central wanted a day and date comedy show. So we all kind of tried to figure out what that was. Um, and so I shot remotes with Craig. I, I went to the Kutztown Amish festival and I called it the Amish Olympics. So Craig Kilborn is butter churning and we've got the ax throw as an Olympic event. And, oh, he was in a sewing circle and, but, but all with the, the kind of Olympic approach. And, and I remember that summer was also the Atlanta Olympics, the notorious ones. And I did a series called peripheral Olympians where I did Olympic profiles of the woman who held up the placard for Yemen and uh, a stripper who had moved to Atlanta to take advantage of the international marketplace. Oh, and the woman who started the wave and how she had a fractured tibia and, and worked herself back into shape. So all we knew was that we were doing parody of basically local news. There was also Dateline at the time on NBC was on five nights a week. And so we did a lot of parodies of their types of storytelling where we would take a two-second event and stretch it out over to a five-minute five <laughs> segment and, and analyze every detail, reenactments. Uh, it's when, um, fortunately, that's when a lot of cable news exploded, and so we were able yep. to sort of parody all the marketing and how everything's considered breaking news, and all of a sudden you needed a ticker Constantly, even though a guy's talking uh -huh. to you on TV, I don't know, should I be reading the ticker? Who's more important here? I'm so confused. And so <laughs> it was just throwing all this new media and it gave us really great uh, material to start to play with in parody news. So it was so, we, we started out as sort of a parody of, of either local or national news, and then it just became playing with all kinds of information that was exploding. And, and, and Craig was our host, and at the time we... You know, we we never knew if we were going to... Uh, somebody said, I give the whole show 13 weeks. So we were updating our resumes at the summer of 96 when that show started, thinking, well, we, we got to find a job in like a month or two. And then here it is, you know, however many years later, the show's still on. So uh, it kind what well, the gift for that show was the 2000 election, where it Bush and Gore got, you know, remember it got extended by a month and we didn't know what was going on. And even oh. that, that election year itself gave us 
really great material to play with. So in 96, it was Clinton and Dole, and it wasn't really a contest. So that election year, the year we started, wasn't much to work with. You know, Dole fell off a platform that year, and that was like kind of all I remember about that entire election. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a lot. So, but, but when 2000 hit, the show really took off, and all of a sudden we were getting all this attention. We had news crews shooting us as we were shooting stories. And I thought, wait, we're a story? What's happening here? I don't understand. So, and we, it, it's, it was, you rarely, you're lucky if a show lasts that long, but also to, to rise out of, you know, cable was not as big a deal then too. So for us to get the kind of attention we ended up getting and even just politicians wanting to come on the show, John Edwards announced his candidacy oh, on the show. Wow. I got a call from his campaign manager saying, would you be okay with John Edwards announcing? And I went to John Stewart and I said, do you, do you want John Edwards to announce on the show? And he said, right, like he'd want to do that. I said, I just got off the phone with his campaign manager and they want to do it. And he turned to me, he said, why? And I said, I don't, I didn't ask that why? question. <laughs> I don't they ask that. Do it. And he did. Oh my God. Yeah. We also had, I remember uh, we, for a while we had Bob Dole as our, as a correspondent and we had a live election night episode and Bob was great. He was so funny and it wasn't like he was doing jokes, but it was a chance for his well-known sense of humor to really come out. So every, every night he would fall off the platform I'm no. not, and it got a big, sure. big laugh every oh, time. There he were only fell. cameras around for one of them. I mean, he was like Chevy Chase. He ended up addicted to painkillers. It's really ends up a sad story. Still alive and with us today. Yeah. Making news now. So um, the uh, Dole, uh, one night we were doing a live hour and we said to Senator Dole, uh, we're going to come to you in 10 minutes and then we're going to come to you in 30 minutes and you're going to do two segments. And he said, right, I got it. So he's in a studio in Washington, D.C. and we're on satellite and we do our first segment with him and it goes great. He's really funny. And they said, great, we'll see you in 20 minutes. And then five minutes before we thought Dole was going to do a second hit, we look at the satellite and it's just an empty chair. And we call our, we call the satellite, we call the DC office and they said, oh no, he took off. He, I think he's home by now. He's, he's not here. Thought, oh God, what are we going to do? Are we going to call him? Like he's probably asleep. <laughs> no, you know where he probably was walking his dog Liberty as I had to do when I was Bob Dole's intern. I had to walk his dog. He lived in you the did. Watergate. Yeah. And that wow. dog was wild. And I'd have to, and you could walk it on the median. The Watergate was basically on this very busy road. And that's where it was terrifying because every time I thought the dog is going to bolt and I will have killed Bob Dole's dog, <laughs> <laughs> which should probably be on my epitaph. You would have had hired goons at your house within seconds. <laughs> Um, <laughs> didn't he? Didn't he take meetings where he would sun himself out on a, an outdoor? Yeah, right. And you'd have to come, and he's bronzing himself. Forgot about that. And he's the Senate Majority Leader, and it's just like. But I also take a great deal of care in my tan as well. It's like, well, that is multitasking. <laughs> but yeah, that. But we were, we were, we were so lucky that that show. Because now there's lots of shows like that, and it's harder to break through. Um, but at the time, there really wasn't, and we were we were fortunate that if something happened where you know Strom Thurmond turns out has a secret love child with a black woman, which is crazy because he ran on the Dixiecrat platform years ago as a segregationist, <laughs> we people would want to tune in to the Daily Show to see what we were going to say about that, and you know, and uh -huh. there's an, there's you could see, you could feel the audience leaning in like, oh my God, here it comes, here it comes, here we go, you know? And yeah. so we were the outlet for that sort of 
that that response. Well, I was wondering as that as the popularity of the show increased, did that also come with increased pressure? Definitely, and it, it, particularly in terms of of doing, uh, you know, when we would we would bring the whole staff. All of a sudden, we got money where we could go to the conventions, the, dem- the you know the political conventions, and oh, right. set up camp for a week. And that's a lot of money for a basic cable show, you know. So it we had to we had to feel like we got to really bring something. So I remember in two thousand the uh, the Republican convention was in Philadelphia, and our the premise of my piece I shot a piece with Vance DeGeneres, who is Ellen's brother and was one of our correspondents. Uh, we we thought of the stand up first. When you think of the city of Philadelphia, you think of three things: you think of Ben Franklin. You think of Rocky, the movie Rocky, and you think of cheesesteaks. But it's really so much more than that. Come along and we'll show you. And for the next three and a half minutes, all we did was reinforce that the city is only those three things (laughs) in various stereotypical ways. So when I'm talking to somebody... He's in a meat. He's in a meat uh, factory punching a steak while he's cracking eggs into a beer. He, when um, we, I hired five different Ben Franklin impersonators to not only be the man on the street people we talked to, but when I'm talking to someone else, I would cycle the Ben Franklins walking behind, so the entire city looks like it's been in period garb, mind you, um, and. The and and as the cheesesteak, it's Ben Franklin's eating cheesesteaks. The 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 end of the piece was it was about a hundred and ten degrees that day too. It was a really really hot day in Philadelphia, and I had my five Ben Franklins in you know colonial garb, which is heavy heavy clothing, eating cheesesteaks, running up the art museum steps um, in Philadelphia, where Rocky you know that's where the Rocky statue is on top, and I only had the one camera, so I had to shoot it over and over again. And so I would shoot it wide. I'd shoot it close-ups on each individual Ben Franklin, eating the heaviest sandwich known to man in 100-degree weather, wearing really hot clothes. And they're not spring chickens, these Ben Franklins. They're no, they are not young, spry men. And at one point, my camera guy turned, and I said, guys, I just need two more shots. It's like they, they were, they'd sweat through these clothes. My camera guy said, I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but you're going to kill one of these guys. I mean, you got to. Listen, Scorsese, let's just bring it down a notch. I think you got Got the shot yeah, here. talk about becoming the story. <laughs> I know exactly. But so, what we needed to to answer your question, Steve, we had it. We had to sort of raise our own expectations, and stakes, because now we know we've got mm-hmm. an audience tuning in, and our first idea isn't going to be good enough. Whereas when we started uh-huh. in '96, uh-huh. it was like we just got to put something on TV tonight. Let's just take whatever we got and you know put it put it in the prompter and call it a day. I remember you had the the moment of Zen uh, at the end of the show. Um, that was based on right. Yeah, the idea for that was CBS Sunday Morning would oh, do. Right. Oh yeah, Charles Corralt. Yeah, they had a name for the very end of the show would be just a, like a hummingbird, you know, uh, sipping nectar, yeah. and it would just be the most gentle, sedate. It was piece so of relaxing. <laughs> so yeah. our moment of Zen, we we gave it sort of the same preparation, but it would be a rhino giving the most splattery birth you've ever seen. So the, the idea that this is going to be this peaceful moment you take away, our intent was we didn't feel like we had it until it was the kind of five-second video that would keep you up all night. And that <laughs> oh. became our moment of Zen. I remember one, they were feeding um, little chicks to alligators. Ah! Um, that is fantastic. It was, yes. it was yeah. so disturbing. It was basically the American carnage that we all lived through now that we in know, a five-second you know, installment. So it goes through Kilborn, and then he's 
let go? I don't know. How does Jon Stewart no, enter the world? He got so the irony at the at the time was that Jon Stewart was set to follow Letterman. It was Tom Snyder oh, who had the show right, after Letterman. Right. And Jon Stewart had a holding deal basically to be the the person to follow that show. And then they because Daily Show became a hit, Craig Kilborn became a hot property and CBS basically switched and they'd never had a hard deal that Jon Stewart was going to follow him, but that was clearly why they sort of signed a contract with him to to be in business with him. And then they switched at the last second and just gave that show to Craig Kilborn, freeing up Jon Stewart, who then um, we did cast for Craig's replacement, uh, but none of the people, once Jon Stewart became available, basically none of the people who we auditioned mattered anymore because John had already mm. hosted a show. I'd worked on John's old show. So, and, and I knew that he, you know, this was really a better fit for him all along than doing an hour long talk show. He doesn't really want to talk to celebrities. He doesn't really want to do, he liked the comedy part of a comedy talk show, but the talk show part, unless it's sort of something that really interested him, he doesn't want to talk to, you know, the, the, the hottest young star of the CW. He just like, he, I think at a certain point he just couldn't fake feign interest in that anymore. So mm-hmm. this, what, what we had was a show where he could pick any guest he wanted just the one guest that he was really excited to talk about that to that night, and also pick apart, you know, the media. I, we, we our, our sense was, and I think the the cable news is really caught up in terms of finding hypocrisy and pointing out where you know, right. like the fact that Bush was able to put talking points out and people regurgitated them, and nobody really connected the dots that this is all an orchestrated plan to manipulate media. We felt like, why are we the only ones saying that? Mm. And now I think there's yeah. a much savvier media response to the ways in which people are sort of hypocritical or, you know, disingenuous. So, but at the time, we really felt mm-hmm. a responsibility. Like, we've got to, why are we, why are we going to war in Iraq? What, why is this a fait accompli? Like, there's, where's the evidence, you know? And we, we did feel like we were saying it in a way that, we didn't hear in a lot of places. Yeah. So this is the era of where they would be interviewing like Newt Gingrich. Was this Colbert? Was this that era? Yeah. So then Colbert started on the show in 99. Um, Steve Carell started, I think, later in 99 or early 2000. Stephen Colbert said, the funniest guy not working is this guy, Steve Carell, who had been in a holding deal with a network and was making sitcoms that didn't air. So he was like put on ice. They were the ambiguous, the voices of the ambiguously gay duo on SNL. Oh yeah. And they were old second city partners and they had done the Dana Carvey show together, which had like crashed and burned so quickly. Yeah. But they were like set up to be stars and then they didn't really have a platform anymore. So Colbert had come from Good Morning America. That's where, that's the job he had right before Daily Show, which is a weird fit for him. So he was so excited to be doing comedy again. And then he said, do whatever you can, but get Steve Carell. I doubt he'll, he lived in California at the time. I doubt he'll move out, but you should try to get him. And then he happened to want to do it right away. It's a shame that those guys never made it. Yeah. What happened to both of them? It's too bad. Yeah. Just a moment (laughs) in time for those guys. They had that one year where they were- one year. They had such potential. (laughs) I know. Um, But, but- um, Colbert would have the chops where he he would be sitting across from Oliver North, and Oliver North thinks that he can 
handle Colbert. And so uh, Hmm. we were in Los Angeles for the convention and Stevens says to Oliver North, have you had a chance to visit the Hollywood Walk of Fame? And and Oliver North has some weird answer. And he says, have you had a chance to go to Universal Studios? And Oliver says, no, I miss those fundraisers. And Stevens says, have you had, while you've been out in Los Angeles, have you had a chance to lie to Congress? Oh my God. And uh, Oliver just doesn't realize that he is not working at the same speed. (laughs) And uh, Steve Carell, I remember, was talking to Richard Gepp part that same convention kids tell tell the kids who richard gephardt was just real quick missouri congressman <laughs> presidential candidate <laughs> st louis right yeah speaker of the house so steve carell yeah. asks uh 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 Dick Gephardt about what what should the Democrats be doing about education and we're in Los Angeles for the convention and uh, Gephardt is this very earnest answer for about 30, 45 seconds. Of course, Steve Carell's not listening to a word. He's just waiting to do his punchline. Yeah. And as as Gephardt's really getting to the meat of what should be a national education platform, uh, Carell says, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's Barbara Streisand over there. I gotta go. And, just, <laughs> <laughs> and the camera leaves, stays on Gephardt, who just figures like, I guess I'm second place to Barbara Streisand. That's, I, I didn't realize that. Um, oh the, the other God. great, great uh. moment from that year was James Woods was there to troll the Democrats, and um, Colbert and I were running around the parking lot together, and he says, oh my God, uh, camera crew, follow me, I've got an idea. And, he, we, and he, we run the entire length of the parking lot at the Staples Center, and he says, oh my God, it's James Woods, it's James Woods. And, and we were running, and we're, we're bumping into people, and we finally catch up, he taps this guy on the shoulder, and it, it turns around, and and Stephen says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I thought you were James Woods. And J- it is James Woods. And James says, I, I am James Woods. And Stephen t- taps him on the shoulder and says, nice try, buddy, and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> James Woods just also... You know, he brought a knife to a gunfight, and you just, yeah. you're not going to win that ever. No, right. no, no. And when, so when does, right. so John Stewart stays around, you then leave because you were with The Daily Show, but you, you left The Daily Show at that, at some point while John is still hosting. Yes. Yeah. I was there for 10 years and I was the co executive producer. Um, wow. And 10 years is a, in, in television is a very, very long time to work anywhere. You're lucky if you have that opportunity. Yeah. But then I got a chance to start to run some shows and be a showrunner, which is what I wanted to do. So you you and then you then you realize uh, when you're when you're launching shows, they don't make it very long, and so then you tr- you get on a next one. So uh, yeah. I worked on a number of different shows, and then the the fortunate thing is um, I inherited Carson Daly's late night show in uh, 2010, right when the Jay and Conan fight was happening, and if you remember. The plant. Remember, they put Jay Leno in primetime for a while, yep. and then they had Conan O'Brien, then they had Jimmy Fallon, then they were going to have Carson. So the plan at one point uh, was, and then they they moved Jay back to late night. So Jay was going to have eleven thirty to twelve. Conan was going to have one to two, uh, twelve to one, and Jimmy Fallon was going to have one a.m. to two a.m. And that was going to knock Carson off the air. And uh, Conan balked and, and went to TBS. And when that happened, the Carson show, which m- half of the staff had already left, assuming they were gone, came back to life and they needed a showrunner. I was working on a show called Iconoclast, which was on the Sundance channel. It was where they take artists from different genres. Oh, yeah. If yeah. you remember, SNL did a great parody where it was like Bjork and Charles Barkley having a really uncomfortable dinner together. <laughs> so that was the actual show. And I that was a this doc series made by these great documentary filmmakers. And then they said, can you start in a week? 
And I was in New York and they needed a showrunner four days later in Los Angeles. Wow. I said, can I, can I have two weeks? I mean, is, is that okay? That's kind of customary when switching jobs. <laughs> is yeah. that okay? And they said, well, we're on the air in two and a half weeks. So whatever time you think you need, I thought, oh God, all right. But, and then, so that show then, I, I was on that for 10 years. So the, the crazy thing is, you just don't know. You, in television, you never can expect that a year from now, you're working on the same thing. You know, it's a very, it's a, it's a career made for, uh, it's, it's the shakiest foundation you can imagine working in show business. So you just got to be okay with whatever change you get. Well, have you ever had an opportunity to work on a show that didn't have the word daily in it? No, I'm open to that, Steve. Have you ever worked with Tyne Daily? Tyne Daly is an amazing, <laughs> yep. what a, what a performer. There is a Cagney and L- Lacey table read for charity happening that I'm going to watch it. I'm not working on it, but I'm just a fan at this point. But I'd love to kind of, t- if I can just maybe linger in the hangout after and see if they- Maybe Maybe they'll do the Cagney and Lacey origin uh, story. Ooh. How, did they- How did they get to be detectives? They didn't start out that way. Uh-uh. Good question, Steve. <laughs> Why are we only doing origin stories for superheroes? I mean, there's so much more story out there. The Booze Brothers is brought to you by Tomstown Distilling Company, a five-year-old craft distillery based in Kansas City, Missouri. Our award-winning spirits are available throughout the country. Learn more about our botanical gin, double oak bourbon, and other spirits at tomstown.com. That's toms-town.com. But Carson Daly was less political, 100% not political, actually. Wasn't it 100% music? No, it was It was a, as a kind of a magazine show. We would do interviews with storytellers. You know, I got to interview uh, Guillermo del Toro when The Shape of Water came out. Oh, cool. And I was such a fan of Pan's Labyrinth. And here's this artist. You know, so we would talk to um, people in show business. We talked to, to athletes, uh, uh, journalists. We would do live music in and around this. Uh, the, we would go to the South by Southwest Film Fe- uh, F- Music Festival originally. Now it's everything. But we'd set up a stage and have a, a whole bunch of acts. We were the first show to shoot Kendrick Lamar and Ed Sheeran. And we got them within like a week of each other. Uh, and we were just so thrilled. And I remember NBC said, so keep doing that. Keep breaking people like Ed Sheeran and Kendrick Lamar. And I thought, <sighs> well, they're still like 10 years later, like among the biggest like hip hop and, yeah. you know, pop acts around. Did you have a deal where they had dinner together? <laughs> with with it, Bjork. It, it, so with there's Bjork, Bjork at the, and, who's and just Barclay sitting kind of over Barclay in the corner. Did color commentary of the whole thing. Um, no, but it was, it, it was a great, cause it was, it was about arts and creativity and culture. And the great thing is when you have a show on that's very, on very late, nobody really cares what you put on. So the, so they gave us complete autonomy to book whatever guests we want, whatever band we wanted, you know, so Halsey, who you know now, when we shot her, it was at the Troubadour, which unfortunately is now just closing this fantastic live music venue in Los Angeles. But I remember my music producer saying, what, whoever this Halsey girl is, she's blowing up. There are lines around the block for her. And that's really exciting to be there when an artist is breaking and just becoming big. Like what just happened to BTS 
is so gigantic that it shuts down the internet when they put a video out, out now. But um, when you're right there, when an artist is abs- acts like breaking, we shot Ed Sheeran at a place in Los Angeles where every other late night booker was there and they wanted to invite Ed to their studio to perform. We would shoot in their small venue where the, he was singing to 75 people. Now he's fills stadiums, obviously, but all those bookers were there to basically corner him after his performance and see, can you come on my show? We'd love to make your late night debut. And they looked over and saw our cameras and thought, wait, we're too late. Uh-huh. You got to be kidding me. Like this isn't there. This is happening right now. He just already shot his debut. And so we were really this crafty small crew that could go anywhere and we'd go into people's homes. And it's sort of like what the pandemic is now, but, uh, before people weren't really doing that. They were all married to studios. Would you, at the end of the day, would you say that BTS was your favorite South Korean boy band or were there other South Korean boy bands that, that you put ahead of that? I, Good question. I would like to think that I don't see uh, K-pop in terms of gender. I don't know why you do. I'm a more of a black pink girl myself. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I just, I just don't assign that to them. I don't like, I, Good for I, you. I get I get that Good. you do, and that's you're that's so just current. Where we differ. <laughs> <laughs> you're so current. You're so current. Wait, the, we have to we have to kind of g- jump to though, and and let the audience know. I also used to work at Access Hollywood during the Billy Bush days. This is now where you are now. Yep. You've been at Access for how long? Not that long. About a about a year and a uh, in June it'll be two years. Wow. So year and a half. We really yeah, should talk I, more. <laughs> right as as Carson's show ended, I got a job the very next day on wow. Access Hollywood. And at the time, um, uh, I I was excited because it was a it's it, before the pandemic we were a live hour that that we would make every night. So there's there is a, a a daytime show. I'm on the nighttime show. There's a weekend show. Um, we had just also hired Mario Lopez over that summer. So when I started, it was like this rebrand of the show and we're live and we hadn't been before. And that will, that will, that is not a job for um, a young person, live television. I, I walk out of the studio, like I just lost a prize fight every night. You know, you're so tired (laughs) with how many things could conceivably go wrong in a live hour of television. I just don't like, and and we adhere to news guidelines. That's new for me. I had worked on the Today Show before where you had, uh, you know, you the Daily Show. We I like the the notion of fact checking was met with utter derision. But now I actually have to do that, and so there yeah. are there are you have to adhere. You know, David, like that that this you don't everything gets passed through lawyers and through clearance people and 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 has to be verified. So to do that live is really really tough because you're trying to hop on top of breaking news, but you cannot be wrong. And you can't say something that you can't verify. So well, it's, the it's change, really, it's the intense. change, the change in mm. entertainment television when I was there, uh, Anna Nicole Smith had died, in, in, I believe it was the Beverly Hilton or, or somewhere, and we knew. And we had inside information of how she died and all that. But TMZ was able to, they under no guidelines. And so they paid off a maid or a housekeeper or something and were able to go two hours before we were able. And that was a big story then. How does entertainment news, you still follow these guidelines. How do you compete with these heavy gossip uh, venues? 
God, once again, David, great question. I hope I'm not saying that too much in this podcast. But how do you compete in an entertainment show is, fortunately, in the last year, we have gone, we have broadened from entertainment to other genres. So we added a lot of true crime, which is for, huge for a, a female mm. viewing audience. We added a lot of human interest stories. So, for example... This week, we shot, you saw the video of the guy uh, riding a skateboard, drinking the ocean spray, listening yep. to Fleetwood Mac. Yep. So that guy's name's Nathan. He is a potato farmer in Idaho, and he didn't have a car, which is why he's riding that skateboard, shooting that video. The, th the video exploded. TikTok, TikTok now runs it as an ad on football games. So we booked this guy, and what we did is... Uh, got him to, we got him on the day that he was going to be presented with a full truck from Ocean Spray loaded with their material. Also, we got him on the day that Mick Fleetwood added his name to the list of people who did his version of that skateboard. That so great. the main thing we can do as a show is advance because with the internet, you cannot be first when you have a fixed time on television. So what you can do is bring them something they don't already know. So we were able to take that guy you saw in that video and give you multiple other angles of this guy's story. And then that makes you you different. You know, like, what do you have that another show doesn't have? So it's it's less about racing to be first on something and more like, what's, what's our viewing experience and what do we tell you that nobody else has? When Chadwick Boseman died, we had a whole library of how great this guy was. He's really shy, understated guy, but the guy was incredible. Like the roles that he did while he was sick for the last several years, you don't see it in him, but you feel that he's got carrying something in his heart. So that was a story that we could tell as opposed to what, you know, his death was such a shock because nobody knew it. Mm. But in our, in our archives, in our vault, we were able to sort of show you that this is a guy who you almost sense was dealing with something else in the video that we were able to show you. And it's like, makes you even miss him even more. So it's, we got to bring you something you don't already see elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, when, when I was there, it was literally a, a debate of differentiation or surrender. Cause I, I mean, for a hot minute, we did not know how this TMZ world, We how do you possibly compete with that? So uh, obviously you guys found a path. Yeah, and it's competitive. You know, like it, it, there isn't a right or wrong answer. It's a gut check for us every day on how to, like, what is the other show going to lead with? Do we want to zigzag to a different topic knowing this is the obvious story they're going to tell? Do we want to be mm. different? You know, and it's also interesting because now with social media, which I was, this was the, I mean, pre like the big Instagram and Facebooks, but the, it, the, with social media, they're breaking their own stories. So it's kind of like scooping may be all but dead. Now it really is about differentiation and adding some salt and pepper to the stew. Get it? Yeah, oh, Stu Bailey. I, I, Get it? I do Stuart see what Bailey. you did there. I mean, uh -huh. I think we all saw it. I think we all saw it coming, too. David, did you see that on Friendster? Or uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and AOL. I still love my AOL account. Live for it. He has, J I just, you've I know mail. this just because I'm a fan, but uh, David has pimped out his MySpace page like you've never seen before. <laughs> it is so hot. He has reinvented the form. I have a little siren uh, that goes around. <laughs> if, if it's, it's people know. Hot, hot, news. hot, hot news. <laughs> Dude, don't uh, touch it. That news is so hot. <laughs> that that is true. Uh, Stuart ever had something that is so like outrageous? Borat is coming out uh, next week, and oh. the, I mean, it's just crazy how, what what he'll do. Ever had some moment like that? Yeah, I well, so that so from having worked at the Daily Show, we did a lot of the kind of work that he does, where you have yeah. a secret agenda. 
and you uh, you can't let the people you're talking to know about that because it'll probably ruin the joke and then they'll start playing along and you lose all the tension. I met with, after Borat came out, he made a feature film of Bruno and because I had this Daily Show experience, I got to meet with him and Jay Roach, one of the producer directors of the of both movies. And I go into a room and it's where they were breaking the Bruno story. So up on the wall, you see all these cards of their storylines and their story beats. And I came in and pitched a joke. And because, Bru- do you know the character Bruno? He's the fashionista. Sure. He was on right. the Ali G show and back in the day. And so I thought this guy is so outrageous. I wanted to take Bruno the other way, which is that he, that Bruno finds himself disrupting a Shriner parade, the guys with the tiny cars and the Fez hats. And so he's this crazy guy in a very sedate, ordinary world. And then I, as I'm pitching this, uh, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is really understated in person. He doesn't really react to anything. If, if I was pitching a joke that he liked, I could hear him typing. Uh, meanwhile, Jay Roach was really responsive. And I just started playing to Jay because he was giving me a response. But Sasha, you, you expect the guy who's outrageous who hands, yeah. hands somebody in Borat a plastic bag of his own uh, feces. That's the guy you think you're getting. And meanwhile, he's just like a librarian typing on his keyboard. Wow. But my my idea to go uh, uh, the other way, I could tell I wasn't going to get the job because I looked up and one of the story beat cards was complaining to the anal bleacher that uh, it's not white enough. Um, the bleaching didn't make uh, the, the anus white enough. And I thought, I am not getting this job. I am going in a different direction, one that I don't think they're going to care for particularly. So I sat the rest, the other half of the meeting thinking, all right, well, this isn't a job I'll be doing. What, what else is there? Steve, I think you'd agree. If I had a dime for every time anal bleaching is mentioned in these podcasts, it's just nuts. We've talked about doing a separate podcast that's just about that. It's well, obviously thank- touched a chord. It really has. That's too close, that it's analogy. But, but I think that um, that's that explains why they are a sponsor to the podcast. And good for you guys. I don't know if yeah. there's a company who does that. <laughs> One of my favorite meta jokes is that Sasha is Jewish, grew up Jewish. And when he's the anti-Semitic character of Borat, he is speaking Yiddish. A lot of that language right. and Hebrew. is Yiddish. And the, nobody knows it because so few Americans understand that language. But that's the inside joke to Jewish people, which is like, oh, you please understand, this is all a joke, and you guys get me. But, but like, it's just like an it's a layer that most people don't even get. But I really appreciate him. He had he gave a speech, and I think this was like two months ago, and he said. Uh, To be clear, when I say racism, hate, and bigotry, I'm not referring to the names of Stephen Miller's Labradoodles. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant. Because that's a separate thing. That is totally right. He does have those dogs, and those are their names. That's not what I'm referring to. (laughs) That's so good. Okay. Now, Stuart, speaking of anal bleaching, as you probably recall very That's the art of the segue right there, by the way. (laughs) how you do it, kids. <laughs> you remember James Lipton? He was in sure. the actors. Not in the actors. He he was the host of the actors' studio. Who over eighty doesn't go on? <laughs> and that is our target audience. I don't want to criticize an obvious pander to a young demographic here, but you might as well be introducing K-pop and TikTok videos if you're going to go the James Lipton route. I mean, kids love James Lipton. That we know. That brings up our sponsor, Insure. Uh, we're glad to have Insure bringing them on this week. And then uh, Geritol next week. 
<laughs> and Jared. Uh, Stuart, <laughs> these questions okay. are going to come rapid fire. Get ready. Fast okay. Are you ready? Seat, yes, sir. Favorite class in high school, least favorite class in high school. Oh, wow. Well, least favorite is the most easy to answer because my mom, when I, uh, my high school was 9 through 12, and, and she wanted me to have one class that was an easy A. So she signed me up for a class called Auto Info which tells you about various car parts, something that I still don't care about or know anything about. And I don't know anything about it because if you'll remember the class you hated in high school, uh, if your teacher wasn't really looking around the class, but just reading from a textbook and never looking up, you, this class started at 8 a.m. I was able to put my elbows on the desk rest my chin in my hands and if i was really focused i would be asleep by 802 so and then only when people were moving their chairs out an hour later going to their next class would i be would my slumber end and i thought well what cuz still today when there's a problem with the car i lift the hood and i'm looking for an on off switch like well here's your problem right here it got switched to off i'll i'll handle this <laughs> so other than that, no idea how it works. So that's the least favorite. The favorite class is probably uh, theater, which uh, uh, I took in uh, as a junior and did some shows, but it started me probably on this career of show business. And and even though I don't perform, um, it's, it, I, I, it got me closer to the thing I wanted to do. I will say that if you are daring, you can look at a performance I did once on The Daily Show where I was a correspondent um, I, it was a profile of the, of the oldest naked magician in the country. It was like one of these, you know, uh, uh, a profile of the arts. And this was a man uh, in Slidell, Louisiana, uh, a swampland about 45 minutes north of New Orleans, who lived in a nudist colony. And to call him a magician is like calling all of us magicians. Like he didn't know how to do it, but that was the premise. And so it was uh, me, my producer, my camera guy, my sound guy, and 500 naked people um, who insisted that we take our clothes off. And uh, nobody, 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 even had we done it, they would have regretted it. But these are people who, who live naked all the time. And I talked to this guy. It's If you search my name in Daily Show, you'll see it. It was from 1999. And I did a performance piece in a nudist colony where, as I'm talking to him, 400 naked people are watching you, not sure what all of this is about. I was fine for that. Afterward, if you remember on the show, you would, after your piece would run, you would sit next to, in my case, Jon Stewart, and he'd ask you a couple of questions. You'd do a couple of jokes. I had such a panic attack all of a sudden <laughs> sitting next to Jon, who I worked with every day. I was a you know producer on the show. It wasn't like, oh my God, it's Jon Stewart. What am I going to say to him? Like, I spent hours a day with this guy, like working on the show. So, but but the notion that I was under lights and I was in a studio made me feel like I was going to die. And so I realized, all right, so that part doesn't interest me, but coming up with these bits and these ideas does. So, but that really kind of was a, was a catalyst for there's something here, figure out your way in this world. Awesome. Uh, okay, <clears throat> my James Lipton question, which is a cooler auto part, the catalytic <laughs> converter or the distributor cap? I think the distributor cap because the kids uh, say no cap, which means I'm not lying. And so I feel like it's cashing in on a current phrase. I have a 15-year-old, so when I say no cap, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you do. And that's no cap. 
<laughs> you know, so you had that at 8 a.m. We had a friend in high school that he chose study hall as his 8 a.m. class, and he bought a tarp that he would dry, drive to school. Who? Who this is this? Bob Boehner. And put oh, yeah, the, I know, Bob. then either go into his high school parking lot or Metcalf <laughs> South, a local shopping center, yeah. put the tarp over his car and sleep. For an hour, <laughs> set the alarm and then go to until his mom saw the car with the tarp Under. over it. I've been doing that at Tomstown for five years, <laughs> and no one noticed. And no, no one, one noticed. It's My mother such, didn't. Even it's notice. such a. It's such a. I love the way you look at it. You know, today we call that homelessness, but you know, in Bob's case, I feel like. That was a choice he was making. <laughs> wow, that is next level what Bob was doing. Yeah, well, yes, it was. No cap. Uh, Steve, do you have a real. Steve, <laughs> on fire, this guy. <laughs> if you weren't in showbiz, what would you be doing today? I would probably be an unsuccessful political strategist for a, a campaign <laughs> that didn't work. I love. Uh, I love the idea of politics and how you control a narrative. I remember I remember seeing George Stephanopoulos and James Carville in New York City in 1992, and someone said, who are you going to vote for in the primary? And somebody yelled, Paul Sangas. This is too old a reference, I know, for the kids. But both Stephanopoulos and Carville whipped their heads around and was like, let's get that guy. Meaning, you know, like they were, Clinton, he was, they were Clinton's team. And I feel like there, there's a desire to win and a competitiveness that when you when you have a chance to win, but it, you, the, you, the actions that you create and the stories that you tell matter, you know. So whether it was politics or something else, I love that idea that you can make a difference. Um, and you know, the, the unfortunate part of pol- politics is you lose at least half the time. So you gotta. It's it's such a great lesson in life, which is you try your best, and sometimes it doesn't work out, and you gotta you know pick it up and try again the next time. So fortunately, the people who worked in politics forever understand that. Like we're gonna lose probably at least half the time, right? Like, you know, almost all candidacies in in a concession speech. You know, it's like being in the basketball championship. Like, there's 64 teams. Only one of you is going to end their season without just tears and I don't know what happened. Like, I thought we had it, you know? (laughs) So it's just a good sort of like, it, it mirrors life so well that it helps you sort of build that character. Yeah, that's true. I think that's going to be the name of my uh, biography. You lose half the time. Uh, <laughs> glass is, real, you should, glass you is half empty. You should be so lucky, Steve. <laughs> you should, well, I, I got a few wins coming up in that case. All right, good. Um, You're due. You're due. <laughs> I want my half. All I want is my half. <laughs> that's it. Um, uh, okay, another question for you, Stuart. What's your favorite TV Jingle, commercial jingle. All right, so I'm not going to go for a TV show. I'm going to go for a commercial jingle, and that is the one that I, when I walk my dogs with my kids, we inevitably, and I don't, I can't explain why, we inevitably sing the theme song to the law firm of Salino and Barnes. Which do you are you familiar? No, that's my favorite song. It is okay. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna break into it. Which is just just can you give give me like a C note real quick? <laughs> Salino and Barnes injury. This is too high for me. Injury attorney, call one eight 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 eight. And so this is a their injury attorney, Salino and Barnes, just recently 
Barnes of Salino and Barnes died in a plane crash oh, randomly. Boy. Oh. Uh, yeah, no, wow. I know. It's all right. It's, it's been, a, it's been a couple of weeks. I know, right? <laughs> Can you say boner crash? So now they got to find this, somebody named Barnes this. to be his partner in the law firm just so they don't have to change the jingle. <laughs> they got to get a new Barnes. Exactly. Yeah. But you, what it reminds me that you don't. It reminds me that it's, this is the same with pop music, is you don't get to choose the song that sticks in your head. <laughs> right. You it know, chooses like, you. I, I don't that want so a true. Justin Bieber song ever in my head, but they've got, there are a few that work their way in there, and it's like, I can't believe it. I'm a grown-ass man humming a Justin Bieber song. This song wasn't even intended for me. How did it get in there? <laughs> So just you, for you just, just for our our podcast listeners, could you sing that song again? It just there's something about it. It's a you've got a magic to you, Stuart. There's, I see your career path. I see it loud and clear. If Casey Kasem were alive David, today, not, I I want to say you're not the first, but you know, there are a lot of singers who re- rely on production, uh, you know, and uh, bells and whistles to get their song out. When you have a pure clear Reverb. voice you don't need all that you know you're, you're not auto-tuned just, no, no sir i don't no i don't no it's, it's authentic it, is what it is thank you yeah just 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 yeah. a microphone and a and a somewhat sedated <laughs> audience and we, and we got a show going one of the things that um uh in our many years of doing this podcast we ask each of our guests um w- when we started tomstown we decided we were going to make game-changing spirits so we were going to make a gin that that was unlike any other gin. We have a bourbon that's a younger bourbon that still tastes great. Uh, our vodka has character. Um, what in your life has kind of been a game changer for you? Can I first say your gin is a game changer? That mm. I drink. Oh, the, I don't. You. I, I I'm not a big drinker, but when I have had that gin, I feel like I'm James Bond with my pick of. Uh, international mm. crises to solve and women to choose. It is like the fantasy life that I'll never actually have, but that gen makes me dream. It really does. Well, thank you. Your spirits thank are amazing, and I'm not getting paid to say that, but I wish I were. Um, so, <laughs> but I, and I would accept it if you offered. But uh, the the game changing moments. Uh, so I, I was saying earlier, I got I knew that I wanted to get into late night TV. Um, David Letterman was really big for me when I was in high school. That show was just coming on the air. I moved to New York and I got on a couple of shows that I got on the original John Stewart show in 1993. This is before he was on the daily show. He had a half hour show on MTV that um, was a pilot originally on the pilot. I was the researcher and the, the human interest guest, the human interest is like the non-celebrity, but the person who can do a, a strange or weird thing that you throw in there for flavor. I found a, I think it was a three or four-year-old boy who was a geography whiz, who if you handed him 50 slices of cheese, he would bite around the ends to create the United <laughs> States. So over the course of our half hour of this show... Uh, this cheese boy, we called him, <laughs> would be hard at work fashioning the continental U.S. out of cheese. And so, you know, 10 minutes into the show, you'd say, hey, how's it going over there? And he just would take the, the slice of cheese out of his mouth. And he's like, I'm working on Idaho. He's like, of course you are. <laughs> so 30 minutes later, he found that. A week later, um, uh, I got a letter from three college students in Pennsylvania who explained that they had developed this game where they could link anyone to Kevin Bacon. Mm. And I said, wait, what, how does, what do you mean you could link someone? And so I called them and they said, we, you know, we were watching 
The Air Up There, a movie where Kevin Bacon is teaching Africans how to play basketball in America. Classic. And Footloose was also on. And then we're thinking, God, this guy's in a lot of movies. And so they, they, you know, we now know this as Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, but at the time they were just saying, we do this weird thing. So I said, wait, how does it work? And they said, give us a name. And I said, Jerry Seinfeld. And they said, well, Seinfeld across the hall was Newman. And Newman was in the movie JFK with Kevin Bacon. I said, oh, I get it. So it's, you link them that way. And at the time, Six Degrees of Separation was a Broadway show. I said, You're, mm. you know, why don't you call yourselves this? That was my one genuine contribution to this idea. But we put them on TV and it was right at the dawn of the internet. It exploded. It was so, it was, you know, like I'd hear people on the subway. I don't know playing the Kevin Bacon game. I'd be at a cocktail party and you hear people doing it. And it's, you, 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 you guys have all still heard of it today. And for me, that was like, it was such adrenaline being part of an idea that exploded. And it was why I wanted to get in media. It's, it's, it, it is like a drug to chase that kind of idea that is so fun and so catchy and, and, you know, that, that's, uh, for me, those were game-changing moments because it solidified what I wanted to do, which is get involved mm. in either comedy or, uh, you know, television or media that, that is fun. It's like, that's what I wake up and that's what I want to do, you know? And so those were moments where it was like, you're in the right place. Well, I, well, I wonder um, <clears throat> if you would uh, maybe think about putting me on TV because I have a game called Six Degrees of Werner Klimper, who was Clink uh, on Hogan's Heroes. It's, it's actually more like a dozen steps separations. To get to Werner Wait, Klimper. Steve, yeah. you're closer than you think because uh, the second time we had Kevin Bacon as a guest, and his deep-seated uh, sense was that they're making fun of me. Oh, so so they threw to him. He now has since embraced it. It's the name of his foundation. Yeah. But at the time, he was like, you guys don't think I'm good enough to be in all these movies. So Kevin Bacon threw them the name Larry Storch, who wasn't too old a reference for them to get. Larry Storch was in, among other things, what? F Troop. F Troop. Thank you. Yeah. Thank God we're all uh, senior citizens. Yeah, so right, I, you, exactly. you understand my references. Sponsored um, by What Geritol. time is dinner at the assisted living facility tonight, David? I, I, this schedule always Cream corn again. Cabbage, Cream corn. Cabbage rolls. But so he, they, didn't, they didn't know who Larry Storch was, and he, he oh. shattered. He broke them for a second, and then he said, that's okay. And then he gave them an easy one, and they did it. But it was the same thing where it was like, I, I bet you guys are good till about 1975, and then nothing. And that was true. So Werner Klemper would have been would have been a similar dagger, Steve. <laughs> uh, Stuart, back to the James Lipton question. Uh, favorite curse word? Wow, uh, there's so many to choose from. They really right? are. So I they really are. Um, I'm going to go with the one that gives me the most pleasure in saying, which is, um, and I think you can say it without bleeping even, is to refer to either a male or a female as numb nuts. And what I like about numb nuts is that it doesn't <laughs> necessarily draw blood, but it does no. suggest that something is wrong with their genitalia. You know, like there's, there is a, it's either a, a circulation problem or it's, you know, it's, it's a low IQ that somehow works its way into your reproductive system. There's just, I have so many questions about it, but it makes it fun to say because it always invites like, in what way are there, are there nuts actually numb? Are you calling them stupid? You know, what, what's in it? What's in it for you? It, it almost has like an air of innocence. Like you numb nuts. Yeah. It just, it, it, it's, it, it, it 
It takes us back to a simpler time, David. I'm glad you get that. (laughs) More innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Bacon's bestie, (laughs) numb nuts himself, Stuart Bailey. Stuart, thank you very, very much for doing it. A time of innocence. A time of innocence. Actually, Stuart, you should be hosting. Yeah, this exactly. Podcast, this frankly, is, but, but, we don't bring a lot to this. Is, I've never been on a podcast before, but honestly, you guys make this really, really fun. And and <laughs> I don't, I don't, I have a feeling that if I were ever to get asked to do another one, it would be a massive letdown. <laughs> because this is really fun, and you feel like, oh, they're always fun. Like, no, that one was. This one sucks. <laughs> The Booze Brothers is brought to you by Tomstown Distilling Company. Steve, what is Tomstown? It's a five-year-old craft distillery based in Kansas City, Missouri. I love that town. Our award-winning spirits are available throughout the country. Learn more about botanical gin, double oak bourbon, and other spirits at Tomstown.com. What's that address, Steve? That's Tomstown.com. Well, David, you were not lying about that man's hair. It was fabulous. Beautiful. I bet he conditioned, Steve. A tip. Oh. Uh, that's a pro tip. That Use conditioner? No. I just, hadn't heard that one before. Just use shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? And well, if you're showering anyway, go ahead and wash that hair while you're at it. Three most magical words in marketing, rinse and repeat. Yeah, because it sold twice as much shampoo. See, uh, our audience is learning Quite a lot tonight. Um, but uh, David, we've set up an email. Are, do you do you have an electronic mail address? No. You're still with AOL, aren't you? Yes. Well, we've got a, an email address now, boozebrothers at toms-town.com. So that now we can t- we can get emails from people. Because I feel like I'm just in a bubble here doing this podcast. And the only thing is we're just, you know, talking back and forth and we we're just uh, we need some outside feedback as long as it's positive. I don't want to hear anything negative. Yeah. Uh, cuz I'm fragile that way as you said. But uh but let's, you know, let's get some emails here at boozebrothers at tomstown.com. Tell us maybe something that it spurred a memory from the daily show that you enjoyed uh, or anything. We we'll take it. We'll take and spam. Sign up me up for any Newsletters, online newsletters. Could always use more spam, Steve. Always. <laughs> robocalls. If you want a robocall. Yeah, let me give. I'm going to go ahead and send out um, your phone number, David, and we'll get on the robo. People can call you, and I'll just check the email box. That'll be my job. Appreciate that. The Booze Brothers is brought to you by Tomstown Distilling Company, creators of game-changing spirits like our botanical gin, distilled with an exotic combination of 14 botanicals. This is an American gin that even gin cynics will enjoy. Its distinctive flavor defines a new generation of gin lovers.